0: listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Mark Kirkendall. We're so glad you've joined us today. And as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. Well, it feels good to be back. And man, I love being a part of a church that we miss so much when we are gone. And I'm blessed with great... Great in laws, and man, they provide opportunities for um, Marla and her two sisters and all of our families to get together. So, we were with them uh, last weekend. Uh, But I do have to confess something that I planned our Life of David series back in January, and to my defense, I did not know I was going to be gone last week. so Clint had to preach one of the most difficult passages of the life of David, even though we just preached it in December. But I wouldn't let him go to chapter 12. And that's what's so hard about it. It's because chapter 12 really doesn't mean much without chapter 11. And if you only preach chapter 11, which he did of David and Bathsheba, there's no hope. And so, hey, but Clint did a fantastic job that he got to talk about David's crash and burn uh, so now this week I get to give us the good news, but Clint did a fantastic job walking through an ugly, a destructive, a deceitful, murderous, an outright sinful display of the life of David. But imagine this, that what would be your greatest fall if it was written down for everyone to read? And that's what we have with David, But that's one of the things I think I love so much about the Bible is that God does not shy away from the ugly of the human life. In fact, I think it's probably one of the reasons it makes the Bible so glorious and so beautiful, allowing us to see the ugly and the brutal and the sinfulness of God's people. But then that helps us to understand how great His love is is for us, because let's be honest, God has no business loving us, but He does. And so, here's what we'll see this morning in chapter 12 of 2 Samuel in our Life of David series. And here's our bottom line, that our Lord wants us to see how great our sin is, so that we can understand how great our salvation is. And I think the two have to work together, that's why you need chapter 11 and chapter 12 together, is that when you see the ugliness of sin, it makes the salvation all the more glorious. In fact, the very first sermon I think I ever preached was about today's passage. I I think I was probably early 20s, maybe 23 years old, uh, had no business preaching whatsoever, But I was young, I was teaching junior high math, I was a leader in our church among our teenagers, and I loved it. In fact, I could not wait for the times that Marla and I, uh, we were dinks, which stands for double income, no kids, so we both had jobs, we had no kids, And so we had all the time and money that we needed. And so those are great youth leaders uh, because they can give that to you. But we loved it. I mean, we loved helping with the Disciple Now weekends. We'd go to Six Flags. We actually looked forward to it. We'd go to camps and give up weeks of vacation to go and do that. And we just loved it. But I remember getting a call from a friend named Russell Knight, was a youth guy in Mount Pleasant. And he asked me to come and be their speaker for their kind of youth weekend. So I remember getting there, I met with Russell on Friday afternoon, I remember him putting a schedule in front of me and then feeling a cold sweat just come over me. Because in our conversations, I missed that I would be preaching what we often would call big church, where all the adults were in the room too. I was comfortable with students, at least I knew a little bit more than they did, but standing in a room full of adults, it terrified me. So I remember panicking going what in the world am I going to say and getting alone and trying to pray through okay Lord give me something to say but now looking back you know 20 years later I see that in my early 20s that God was doing something man I had such a zeal for living for the Lord I was overwhelmed by God's goodness in our lives I saw my life's only hope nothing mattered more in my life than the Lord. So in my early 20s, God really was opening up my eyes to really my need for Him. And that's what He was doing. I remember being in a place that I knew I was actually being rescued. And that's how it felt. Priorities were changing. Things were... Seeing them, I knew as I should see them. And I realized God was saving me from myself. And so I remember I preached... on. David's sin with Bathsheba in Psalm fifty-one. The God's grace in that is you can't find that sermon anywhere. I've made sure, but today I want us to see that this morning because here's what we'll see: David is at the pinnacle of life. He's wealthy. He's rich. Big family. He's at the top of the kingdom of Israel. His political power. He's got all that he needs. I mean, he has come from a shepherd. To the king over Israel. But he will be brought to his knees. By four simple words. See David sinned with Bathsheba. Which you saw last week. He broke the trust of all the Israelites. In fact he murders one of his most faithful and dedicated soldiers. And David finds himself at the lowest point that he could probably ever imagine. And David needs help. David needs saving. But here's what David comes to realize. His kingly power cannot help him in this situation. His money, his wealth, he can't buy his way out. Politics can't save him. His family loyalties can't help him. There is only one place that David can find saving, and we're going to see it this morning. So you're in 2 Samuel hopefully by now, and your Bibles are in your device. So chapter 11, real quick, was this. is David sins with Bathsheba. He's home, he's relaxing. The Scripture says is he should be out at war, as the other kings, but he's at home. He sees Bathsheba, he sins for her, he commits adultery. But then he uses his power, he uses his influence to try to cover up his sin. And what he does, he ends up murdering Bathsheba's husband. Not by his own sword, But he gives the order, and Uriah is murdered. But do you remember what the penalty for that would have been? It's going to be important for today's passage. The penalty is death. For what David did, according to the law, he deserved to die. But David, in chapter 11, his problem is he's trying to manage his sin. He knows there's a problem, and he himself is trying to fix it. So we pick up now in verse 1 of chapter 12. And the Lord sent Nathan, he's the prophet, to David. But put yourself in his place. You're the prophet. It wasn't a glamorous job. Oftentimes, you were the ones that had to bring the bad news. And you're about to have to go to the most powerful man in the world. And you're going to have to confront him. Nathan's smart. You can't just come up and say, hey, David, we need to have a talk. So what he does He tells David a story, and this is brilliant. So he came to him and he said, There were two men in a certain city. One rich and one poor, and the other poor. What you're going to see is notice that the rich man, he gets one line. But the poor man, he's going to get four. Now verse 2. The rich man, he had very many flocks and herds. And what that means, he had too many to count. He had a plethora, I mean, he had more than he needed of flocks and herds. He couldn't even count them. And that's all it says about the rich man. Verse 3, but the poor man, he had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought, and he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children, and he used to eat with, with his morsel and drink from his cup. And to lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. So you see the contrast is that one guy has more than he can count. I mean, you can't even count his flocks and herds. But the poor man, he has one female lamb. Saves up his money, and he saves up enough to buy this one little female lamb. He raises it from birth, cares for, it. fed it from its own plate. It's seen as one of his own family. So, the offer wants us to see how special this one lamb is, but then we will see the other. Look at verse 4. Now, there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest. So, not only a whole flock, he says, just one from his flock. But he had him come, and he took the poor man's lamb, prepared it for the man. Who had come to him. So the poor man is having to care for his family. But the rich man, he just, he has a guest he wants to feed. He he wants to show hospitality. But the rich man cannot bring himself to give up one of his many flocks and herds. So what does he do? He steals the poor man's one family land. In fact, our anger should burn when we read and we hear about this story, and that's what we see with David. David is furious. Look at verse 5 and 6. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, this is who I'm, I'm swearing by, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold, because he did this thing, and because he had no pity. And I mean, David is livid. He is furious. I mean, he can't believe someone would do such a thing as take this one family's only lamb. David says even that this man deserves to die. Here's what interesting. According to the law, this was not a a defense that that David could have taken. That the man did not deserve to pay with his life. It didn't warrant the death penalty. But that's how furious, that's how upset David is. And Nathan is patiently waiting. He's telling us, I mean, he can he can feel himself reeling David in. David allows his anger, I think, to swell up in David to the point that David wants this rich man to pay with his own life for what he had done. Nathan waits, and I believe he slows down his speech. And then you read verse 7. He's got him right where he wants him. He looks David in the eye and he says, You are the man. He says, David, the man? He is you. And in that moment, everything that David had thought and he had planned and he had done to manage his sin, all of a sudden comes to the front. And David is face to face with his sin. You are that man. David has nowhere to turn. I mean, as those words settle in, Nathan continues. because He says, David, it it actually gets worse. Look at how verse 7 continues. It says, and thus says the Lord, the God of Israel. He wants to remind David just what God has done. He says, I anointed you king over Israel. I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms and gave you the house of Israel and Judah. But then this last part, he says, and if that wasn't enough, if you needed more, I would have added to you as much more. So God God is doing, he is relaying all of his goodness, all of his faithfulness to David. He wants him to feel the weight and the contrast of all of this. I anointed you king. I saved you from Saul. I gave you your master's house. I put you over Israel and Judah. And if that was not enough, I would have given you more. And I think what we see is often our greatest seasons of rebellion, and we've probably all had them. I know I have. Our greatest seasons of rebellion are when we lose sight of God's goodness and his blessing and his grace in our lives, when we lose sight of those, I think that's when our seasons of rebellion happen. But don't lose this about David. He's already been told he's the man after God's own heart. He went through the struggles of running from Saul. He then becomes king at 30, so he's probably in his mid-40s. But that meant back then his greatest fall was always before him. Meaning we never need to get too comfortable. Meaning no matter what our age might be, no matter what we've been able to accomplish, no matter how close we might feel to God, our greatest fall could still be ahead of us. So God needs to drive the point home. After he reminds David of all that he's done for David, he paints a vivid picture of what David has done in return. In verse 9, he says, So that's what I've done for you, David. Then why have you despised the word of the Lord? To do what is evil in his sight. You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. So God says to David, You are the one who killed Uriah. Even though it was not your sword, by your actions you killed him. But I want us to notice that the sin of killing Uriah, Noticed what came before, because that wasn't the first sin. In fact, the first sin wasn't even with Bathsheba. David's fall began by despising the word of the Lord. That's where all sin originates. This word despised, it means to neglect or maybe better, to disregard David treated God's Word, or maybe God's standard, as if it really didn't matter. In fact, that's the greatest sin that we all have, is that we all want to be our own God. We want to decide what is right and wrong, and what we should do and not do. And God says to trample on His Word is to trample on Him. So just think for a moment where we are in 2018 in our own lives, that how seriously do we take God's word and God's standard? Do we hold it up as going, this is ultimate authority. Whatever the Lord says, I will obey. So God announces the verdict, guilty. You despised my word, you trampled on me. So now God must announce punishment Because all sin has to be punished. Begin in verse 10. Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house, David. Number one. Because you despised me and you have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord. Behold, I will raise up evil against you in your own house. Number two. And I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor. Number three. And he shall lay with your wives in the sight of this son. For you did in secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the son. So here's the punishment. He says this. First of all, the sword shall never depart. Meaning this. You've had peace, David. No longer. No longer will there be peace. You will have war, and you will have strife in the kingdom. But you will also have evil within your own home. In fact, all you have to do is turn over about four chapters, and you watch David's own family rebel against him. He says, I'm going to take your wives, and I'm going to give them to other men. David sinned in secret, but you're going to watch the evil of sin being lived out In front of you. But here's the question. Why would God do this? Why would God want that displayed for everyone to see? Can't God just forgive and then move on? Why would God have everyone look at David's consequences? And that's because the Lord wants us to see how great our sin is. So that we can better understand how great our salvation is. Is Because if anyone understood it, if anyone appreciated it, it would have been David. But then the question is, will David experience this salvation? Because David knew what happened with Saul. Saul rebelled. God confronted him. So let's see David's response in verse 13. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. That's it. I have sinned against the Lord. And when I first read that, my first thought was this is that's all you have to say, David? I mean, adultery, deceit, lying, and murder. And the only thing you can come up with is two Hebrew words. I have sinned against you, Lord. That's it. I thought, that's all you have to say for yourself. But then it hit me. I think that is what is so powerful. It's not. What is there, but it's what what is not there. So let's look at David's confession. That's all he says. I've sinned against you. But David's confession, it's so simple, but it's so powerful. Because notice what's not there. First of all, there's no excuses. David does not try to excuse his sin. He could have said, you know what? I've got needs. And my wives, listen, they're just not paying attention to me. But there's no excuses. There's no pleading his weakness. Listen, God, I was alone. No one understands the pressures of being king. No one gets it. There's no pleading his weakness. There's no explaining his sin away. If only I'd gone to battle like I should have, I never would have sinned like that. He doesn't compare himself to others. You know, I sinned, but man, do you remember Saul? Do you remember how evil he was? There's no comparing himself. But there's also no offering to do better or trying to fix it. You know, Lord, I'm sorry, but next time, hey, I will fly right. Next time, I'm going to get it right, Lord. There is no trying to fix it himself. So David simply does this. He really does two things. He takes responsibility for his sin, but then he relies on grace to transform him. David knows he can't fix his own problem. So I think this is the key, is that to be a man after God's own heart is not to be sinlessly perfect, but is to be utterly submissive to the correcting word God. And that's the difference between him and Saul. They both failed miserably. They're both sinful. But when God's word came, David submitted to it. I think this is such a great example for us. Because I don't know when the last time was that you felt the conviction of the Spirit and you just began confessing. I think oftentimes we can offer excuses. Listen, hey, I'm sorry for my anger, but you know what? You just don't don't know what it was like growing up the way I did. That's just how I was raised. We use our words in hurtful ways. And, well, you know, we can plead our weakness. We can compare ourselves to others. We can offer to try to do better. Oh, if you'll just forgive me, you know, I won't do that again. Remember that confession is simply taking responsibility for our sins and saying, I did it. It's all me. But then it's relying on grace to transform you. But I want us to see, I think, the most glorious part about this whole story of David's life. Because David knew what happened with Saul. When Saul rebelled, God took his spirit from Saul, and Saul lost everything. So David is confronted with his sin. He can't deny it anymore. He simply confesses, I've sinned against the Lord. But what would David now experience? Would God take his spirit from him? Would he lose everything? David is waiting for the response. And we get it to the end of verse 13. And Nathan said to David, The Lord has put away all your sin. You shall not die. This word put away, it means to cast out or to cast aside. It means to treat it as if it never happened. In fact, it means to forget. But how often have we done this? It's what we say, hey, I forgive, but I never what? Forget. But that's not at all how God works. That is not at all at how God's grace operates. When we confess, God says, what sin? So he cast it aside. In fact, Psalm 103 tells us that he cast it away as far as the east is from the west. So here's what we see is that there is a way back into fellowship with God, even from the depths of evil. And it happens through confession and then relying on grace to transform us. And David, David is the one that deserved death, but what he finds, he finds life. He says, the Lord has put away, has cast aside your sin and you shall not die. But it gets real interesting. And so I want to recap the end of the story because there's a part in here that's It could be a little troubling. See, God's forgiveness is is always free. But all sin has to be paid for. And here's the gospel. It's that you will pay for your sin, and it will take you an eternity to do it. Or you rely on Christ to pay it for you. So God tells David, Listen, David, I'm going to put away your sin. I'm going to cast it aside. You will not die. But he says, however, the child that Bathsheba is carrying, that child will die. And I think this had to be the hardest part for David as a parent. Because I believe David would have done anything to save that child. The hardest part of enduring all of this would have been knowing that his sin is bringing this about. I believe David wanted to pay for his own sins. But God is teaching David and he's teaching us, listen, you can't do it. You can't pay for your sins. And as that child is laying in that bed sick, David begins to fast. He goes to the temple and he prays and he cries out to God to save his child. The servants are trying to get David to eat and to rest, but he won't do it. You see, David understands God's grace. And even though he knows he doesn't deserve it, he's crying out for more and more of it. But then the moment comes that the child dies. It is in that moment that David washes and he eats. And this utterly confuses everyone around them and says, why Why are you doing this? You should have been mourning and fasting then. Why are you getting cleaned up now? Now is when you should be mourning. But you read verse 21. Then the servant said to him, What is this thing you have done? You fasted and you wept for the child while the child was alive. But when the child died, you rose and you ate food. They're saying, David, you have it all backwards. And he said, while the child was still alive, I fasted and I wept. For I said, who knows whether the Lord will be gracious to me that the child may live. He was asking for more and more grace for God to do something. But then in verse 23, he says, but now he is dead. What should I fast? Can I bring him back again? But here is where you see faith be given to David. He says, I shall go to him, but he will not be able to return to me. And what we see is David accepted God's will. He laid himself out before the Lord, but then he rose up again as painful as it was, and he accepted God's will. But notice the faith and the hope that God gave David. David said, I cannot bring my child back, but one day I will go to him. And I believe this is one of the verses that proves that all children who die are with the Lord. You could go to Deuteronomy 1, John chapter 9, Romans 1, and Romans 5, that the Lord has a special place in His heart for children. And so what we come face to face with this morning is that the Lord wants us to see how great our sin is. He doesn't do it to shame us. He doesn't do it to make us uh, feel bad about that in and of itself. He does it so we will understand more greatly the salvation that we have. And David was only able to see how great his salvation was after he saw how great his sin was. And his sin was monstrous. But the grace of God was bigger. It was more sufficient to forgive and to restore David. Listen how Paul Tripp kind of summarizes this. He says, you know, we can't grieve what our heart hasn't seen. And that's why God wants us to see our sin. But you cannot confess what you have not grieved. You cannot repent of what you have not confessed. Only when our eyes become open to the by an act of grace that we begin to confess and to seek the help of our Savior. See, sin is the ultimate human disaster. Sin destroys relationships, it destroys homes, marriages, communities, careers, and lives. And David needs saving. But his kingly power can't save him. His wealth can't buy his way out. Politics can't save him. His family loyalties can't help him. There's only one place, and he finds it in the Lord. You know, a few weeks ago, there was a funeral of the great Billy Graham. Someone I grew up watching and hearing about. I never was able to go to one of his crusades, but you've probably seen them at least on TV. And at his funeral, there was story after story after story of this great man of the Lord, man of such integrity. And they were going through sharing story after story, speaker after speaker. But of all the ones I watched, the one that stood out to me the most was by his youngest daughter, the middle of the road, his daughter Ruth. She shared some funny stories and about growing up and even under love and care of, of Billy Graham. But then she got real personal. And she said that after 23 years of marriage, that marriage ended in failure. And she said, you can't imagine the embarrassment and the failure that I felt. The daughter of the great Billy Graham can't keep her marriage together. Her family advisor said, you know what, it'd be good for you to move away, get a new start. So she moved closer to her sister and says that she found a good church to get involved with. But it didn't take long and she was introduced to a widower. And she said they began to date fast and furious. And they quickly announced that they were going to be getting married. But her children pleaded with her not to. But she thought, you know what, listen, I'm a grown woman. You can't tell me what to do. Her mother calls her from Seattle. Her father Billy calls her from Tokyo. And they said, honey, why don't you just slow down and let us get to know this guy a little bit more. But she thought to herself, listen, they've never been a single parent. They don't understand the loneliness that I'm living with. After 23 years of having a spouse and all of a sudden I'm alone. But being stubborn and sinful, she married him on New Year's Eve. And she said within 24 hours, she knew she'd made a mistake. After five weeks, she fled. She ran because she was afraid of him. And all she wanted to do was to go and see her father and mother. But she thought, how could I? How could I face them after the disgrace now of two failed marriages? The embarrassment that I've caused them. All the media outlets are going to get a hold of this. But she started that two-day journey. To go see her mother and father. She said questions were swirling in her mind. She couldn't put them to rest. What was she going to say to daddy. Mother. Her children. Would they say we told you so. We're tired of fooling with you. You refuse to listen with us. Deal with the mistakes you've made. Man you have embarrassed us. Time and time again. We are through. She thought the last thing that she wanted to do was to embarrass her parents. And she said, you know what? You really don't want to embarrass your mother. You really don't want to embarrass your father. But you really don't want to embarrass Billy Graham. But she said they lived on the top of a mountain. The road winded around. And she said, I came around that last bend of the road. And when she said, I came around that bend, there stood my father, Billy Graham. As she climbed out of the car, she said, he put his arms around me. And he said two simple words, welcome home. There was no shame, no blame, only unconditional love. But then she said this. She said, my father was not God, but he showed me what God was like. You know, and I don't know where you find yourself this morning, but I want you to know that no matter what you've done or what you might be doing, there is always a way home. And it's through confession and relying on grace to transform you. Because see, the Lord wants us to see how great our salvation is only so that we will understand how great our salvation is. Let me pray. Father, this morning, what an incredible reminder of your grace. Lord, that there is no one that is beyond your reach. There isn't a sinner that you can't restore. No matter how great we may feel, Lord, you can restore us all. No matter what we have done or what we might be doing, there is always a way home. Through confessing, in the relying on grace to transform us, that we can't manage our own sin. In fact, it's the worst thing we can do. And we saw that in David. Lord, we're thankful that you want to show us how great our sin is so that we can understand how great our salvation really is. So, Father, help us to be people that are quick to confess, that are are quick to respond to the correction of your Spirit. And Lord, then help us to lean upon the promise that you will cast away our sin as far as the east is from the west. And we're sorry, thankful that we can always find our way home. It's in your son's name and by the power of your spirits we pray. Amen. Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We hope that you were blessed and encouraged. And if you have any questions or comments, we want you to let us know simply send your thoughts to questions at Bethelbible.com. Thanks for spending time with us, and be sure to join us next week on the Bethel Bible Podcast.